Welcome to In the Demo, a show about the stories that get told about groups, how those stories got made, what we think those stories get wrong, and why it matters. You hosts, Farah Bostic is the founder and head of research and strategy of The Difference Engine, a strategic insights consultancy focused on helping business leaders make decisions. Adam Piano, author and brand consultant and managing director of brand strategy at Arizona State University. You are now in the demo. I'm Adam Pierno, Generation X. And I'm Farah Bostock, the John Hughes movie generation. <laughs> that is a good one. Today we have a special guest. And my name is Rose Cameron. Rose, thank you so much for making time and joining us. We really appreciate it. Always a pleasure to be with you guys. Love chatting with you. Oh, it's great. So Rose, we were just catching up. And as we were telling you all the research that Farah and I have done and her work finding what we think is the original source text, uh, Millennials Rising, uh, we had a chance to learn from you uh, during another conversation that you were actively researching, doing work with, um, creating programs around millennials as, as the audience was being developed, researched, defined, redefined. And we thought it would be really valuable for our work to understand from you in the, in the real time, um, another perspective of how that work was happening. Yeah, it, it's really interesting because I, I grew up with them. So I went from working on Stride Right and researching what they were like as babies and toddlers to McDonald's working on how they evolved the approach to the Happy Meal, uh, then on to Nintendo, them as teens and tweens, uh, at, well, very much the tween and teen aspect. And then I was working on gender definition. So I did the largest ever um male study in the world in 2005 and discovered how men were evolving their definition very much based on generational drivers. And then the last bit was looking at them as parents. So I've literally watched them. And I think one of the things that you've probably seen is how much of this is actually the generation itself versus the life stage, you know, mm -hmm. uh, because I think one of the flaws of a lot of the research is that they don't include um, the other generations to say what is the same or different, right? It's like doing a gender study without doing the other genders, right? You could say this of both, right? But you didn't study them, so you're buggered, right? <laughs> um, so what I found and what my theory is, is sure, there was all of this stuff bubbling up around this generation. Uh, from the marketing perspective, there were two key drivers in my mind of why they became such a huge topic, area of topic. Uh, one was their sheer size. They ranged between 22 to 27 percent of the population at any given time and reporting. Uh, so everybody was after this enormous potential audience to sell stuff to. And the other one was, and, and I'm very open about this, their parentage. Okay. So if you look at how could they be such an enormous population, 27% of the population, 22% of the population? Well, their parents were the boomers. 
who were 25% of the population, right? Largest generation ever, who felt that they were going to redefine the world. Yes. Right? They were the kids there at Woodstock. They thought they were going to change everything. And as I've discovered in, in several workshops, where I'll have boomers in the audience of the workshop, these people are really bitter and twisted that they did not change the world, right? So they have delegated the changing of the world to their special snowflakes, their children. That's interesting. And, but do and you, that's the millennials. Well, let's let's dig into what the timeline you just laid out. So I think for listeners, they may not know, um, Rose, the work you do. You mentioned Stride Right, McDonald's, all these brands, and having mm -hmm. doing research into this group, you know, as bef I think before they were a generation, as we saw that they were still voting on what they would be called, as, you know, into the mid 2000s. You can still uh, find yeah. Echo Boomer articles. So, yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> so, Rose, would you mind just giving people a quick, a quick, uh, look at your career and background and, and the work you do? Sure, sure. So um, for the past 30 years, I've worked in global marketing, right? I'm a cultural anthropologist by training. That's what my degree is in. Uh, but then I went on to work for every single holding company in the advertising industry. I was one of the first ever integrated planners um, who actually spanned media from, you know, our traditional media of paper media and, and television media all the way through to digital. Mm -hmm. uh, I was one of the first digital anthropologists uh, working with the likes of Misha Tramp, who has defined a lot of the core technology around uh, that. And so as this technology, as these new modalities, as the expansion of media occurred, I was there doing the planning on it. Uh, it some people may be out there saying, what the heck is a planner? A planner is essentially a strategist who translates the cultural and consumer needs and trends to useful roles for businesses. Right. So I would go into very new brands and define their role for people. And I would go to very old brands and say, how do we meaningfully evolve their definition to the times? So that's what I've been doing. And it's a, a lot of different brands. I started off on a, a brand that nobody understood. It was this crappy little tech company called Microsoft. Uh, <laughs> I worked Too, bad. On, Too bad that never took yeah. off. There you go. Yeah, I kind of languished, right? Um, uh, and it was all because my dad was an aeronautical engineer. I would have to understand the software stuff, right? Uh, worked on all the hardware of IBM. Then I went into consumer brands. So I've done B2B and B2C. And what I've very often found is, you know, people are human beings. And when you're working with clients, a lot of them bring their own personal stuff to the table, right? Yeah. So. I've dealt with very large brands whose whose CMOs are highly conflicted with their teenage kids, want to be seen as cooler, so are trying to convince me to recommend Justin Timberlake and Mariah Carey for their next major event because that would make them look sexy in the eyes of their teen kid who's essentially a lock-in up in their room. Mm -hmm. So, you know... <laughs> 
we we cannot forget that a great deal of this is highly dependent on human beings and how they see the world. And that's why I say millennials are important as they are just because their sheer size and who their parents were at that given time. They were the decision makers in marketing. They liked nothing better than trying to figure out who their kids were and why their children were so important. And was right? that the was that direction you got from clients to to understand that as i mean were they literally asking you to do that or is that just you've come to realize that over time that that's the puzzle they were trying to solve uh they they were not saying help me figure out my kid because a lot of these people are major power brokers so sure. they're not going to be that vulnerable in front of you right um but they were saying millennials everybody was saying and it was you know uh, very much Gen Y or millennials to the point that you were making earlier. You know, what are they? Are they an echo boomer? Are they Gen Y? Are they millennials? Um, and, it, you know, it didn't matter. It was essentially their kids. <laughs> this this huge group of people. And it started, was was Strideright one of their earlier, because um, Strideright are kids' yep. shoes, uh, essentially. Yep. So. They were, you're talking then about kids that are five to 12 years old. So they hadn't been developed into the, the monolithic younger. millennial. They were younger. Oh, yeah. They were younger. Um, so it was stride, right? Our toddler shoes, uh, and they're really beautifully made ergonomic shoes. Good and for you. So, Good for you. Yeah. Stay into the messaging points, Rose. I'm proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> I really loved them as a client. They were a great client. Um, the, so they were, uh, we were targeting the Gen X's and how they were raising their children differently, right? And the how the boomers were raising their children. So you had the toddler set there. That was pre, I'm just thinking about, it was probably, it was right around the time my daughter was a toddler. So it was 2001. Okay. Yeah, 2001, 2002. Um, so yeah, it was pretty early on, uh, the work I did on Microsoft was, uh, pre, it was 1992 to 1995 for the first run at that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that'd be so early for millennial. Oh, go ahead, Farrah. Well, I mean, it it's, it's interesting about that as you're looking then at the, the front end and the back end, right? If, if you're yes, looking at kind of older millennials in the early nineties, younger, you know, the babies in two thousands, like that's, that's the <laughs> 2000 ish, 2002 is sort of the cutoff for most yeah. of the demographers. So that's really interesting because yeah. we've talked about this too, of like the, the Gen X parented. I think we've talked about this. I know I've read about it and thought about it a little bit, but the difference between the boomer parents of millennials and the Xer parents of millennials. Um, and even we've talked about before, you know, these cohort spans being about 20, 22 years, a lot of the time, yep. you know, the boomers who get married and have their first kids in this early seventies yep. are, or late sixties are very different than even sometimes the exact same boomers who then have subsequent children yeah. in the late seventies, early eighties. Um, you know, like literally, <laughs> you know, my family, my dad was married previously, had a kid in that marriage, knew pretty much immediately the marriage was a bad idea. You know, so my, my stepsister or half sister rather is, is the latchkey. I don't know if she was, <laughs> but like the, she was, she would have been in the kind of latchkey kid part of that Gen Xer experience. She's older than me by five or six years. Um, my brother's four years younger than me. So he's like the first of the millennials. Um, and you know, the, the second marriage with the two kids and, you know, 
different economic status, different career entirely. Yeah, I too got assigned. Stage, yeah. yeah. I too, by the way, Rose got assigned to Microsoft when I worked at Holland Partners because my dad worked at Intel in server and tools. And so therefore I should probably know. <laughs> You know, it's a genetic thing, right? People just assume, you know, oh, you got that gene, then you're going to be an engineer. And I'm like, uh, I, my degree is in cultural anthropology and theater. Right. Yes. Yes. I, I, yeah. My journalism degree really sets me up for this. Yeah, exactly. 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 It, uh, it's been very interesting because you, uh, I did later on uh, when I was focusing primarily on gender, I was able to kind of collect the information from those developmental periods, right? And, and look at them and say, how are these people different from those previous generations? You brought up the term latchkey. Mm. Uh, I was doing a presentation at Northwestern uh, Medical uh school and uh, in chicago and i brought up the term i was talking about men and how their definition had changed and i said a lot of the guys who were raised during the gen x period were latchkey kids the entire room looked at me like what the heck are you talking about that term was dead by the time they were growing up yeah mm -hmm. right and uh, it, it's so interesting to see the death of key terms, right? Mm -hmm. Because contextually, they had no relation. Additionally, when I was talking about women, I'd get into these women's uh, events that I was invited to speak to. And uh, you'd have the woman in the back. They were always in the back, the 60s ladies, right, who had fought for feminism and all the rest of it. And, man, they were pissed off. They were like, these young women, we built the environment for them to succeed, and they're calling feminists bad names and all of this. And I said, you know, we did too good of a job. You know, once we got it, we dropped the ball, and they had no contextual relevance for why sh they should keep this up. Right. And then five years later, you had the hashtag me too generation. Mm -hmm. So it, it's so interesting seeing how quickly we forget things, right? How quickly we forget that the CMOs were all boomers and they were, the, these were their kids and they were obsessed with our findings because not only would it bring more money into their companies, but it explained the dynamics of their household. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Having a more personal investment in it. I mean, I, I frequently Absolutely. joke about the, the CEO or the CMO's kid as the focus group that matters. <laughs> and, um, and totally. yeah, it's, but you've got a, you've got a huge swath of corporate decision makers who are focus grouping every dine at dinner. And nobody talked about the Gen Xers. I mean, no, no, we are the forgotten generation, right? <laughs> yeah. And and we were so critical. Like I was just saying at the beginning, we were the beta testers. So a lot of the technology that was created may have been created by boomers, but the people who actually tested it on the ground in work environments were the Xers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I so, actually, I can literally remember the IT people bringing me different types of computers at one of my first jobs and being like, you seem to understand these things. Test this new Mac they had like a cube, a cube <laughs> format. And I was like, okay. They're like, you're a power user. I was like, I make layouts. Like <laughs> I use Quark Express. I'm not sure I'm a power user. Mm, I miss Quark. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
I do kind of. Do you really? <laughs> it was well, a simpler time. You know, and I mean, I remember launching major languages like I launched uh, C, C++, Visual Basic, Visual C++. And I remember when we launched Visual Basic, it was around right about 95, 90. No, it was before 95. It was 93, 94. And they were like, everybody's going to be developing applications in the future. And I recently had interviews with a no-code guy who mm -hmm. was working. And he's like, you know, everybody's going to be – I said, well, is this object-oriented development? Isn't this <laughs> – he was looking at me like, how dare I make a comparison to something in the 90s? But it is. But he forgot. It was – that's yeah. object-oriented as latchkey kids for him. <laughs> Yeah, it's exactly. Yep, there you and go. When you, you go. were doing that research, was there, as you, as the meetings and the topics and the presentations evolved year over year or quarter over quarter, were you aware of the the energy building around the millennial generation at that point? They were obsessed, Adam. They were obsessed. If I had one more me, because if it wasn't millennials, it was millennial like, Ooh, I mean, literally. Mean? Okay. So um, an undisclosed QSR, quick service restaurant that I worked with uh, was like, uh, our target audience is millennials. And I looked at the data of the consumption. I said, are you looking for prospects? Because all of the data is saying <laughs> you're boomers, actually. They're not. No. Well, we want technologically savvy um, and so they're millennials. And I'm like, well, you know, not every millennial is technologically savvy. Um, <laughs> and they'll tell you this. I mean, they are so ticked off. Millennials are that everybody calls them tech savvy, right? Digital natives, um, Rose. They're digital yeah. natives. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think they have different expectation sets, but their literacy uh, is, is, you know, depends on the individual. Right. And, you know, they, they take great offense. If you talk to millennials, they take great offense about generalizations. Mm -hmm. Um, because uh, yeah. yeah, go ahead. I mean, well, I was just going to say, we, we saw some of that in the, in the research about, um, these early surveys of millennials. I mean, the older cohort, the first 10 years of millennials asking them what they would like their generation to be called. And the most popular response was nothing. Uh, <laughs> like that was don't don't call us any one thing. And, and it makes sense to your point when you're talking about a quarter of the population, how can they all be one thing? But the, that, that story about them being digital natives and, and all of that had really like that that came into focus really fast. Yeah. It's, it, it felt like anyway at the time. Well, if you think, you know, the boomers are inventing all this technology, of course, their children are going to be the wunderkinds of it. You know, that gene that you got from your dad and I got from my dad, <laughs> you know, Farah, that made us the wunderkinds, right? Um, and they felt that way. It's it's really interesting to see how it bled into overall marketing. Yeah. What's interesting is, as we've been looking at this book millennials rising is that it's written by a couple of guys who live in the kind of Fairfax County, Virginia area. <laughs> they are involved in that kind of across the beltway DC sort of culture. So they're very steeped in politics and economics and demographics and those kinds of things. Um, but th 
it's our, our read of of uh, parts of what the research they did there was like they were very focused on like the kids in their neighborhood. And yeah. so the, that was what they had curiosity about. It's also what they had clearly anxiety about. And so they're like trying to describe this whole generation based on that group. What it sounds like you're describing is like the people who are going to wind up being heads of product, heads of marketing in these, um, you know, especially tech companies. You know, yeah, my, my dad worked in, you know, the Silicon Corridor all through the 80s and 90s until he died. And um, so Intel, Sun, you know, little startups you've never heard of, Infocus Systems, whatever, all of these places. And so, yeah, we always had a computer. Computer. I, I I barely remember a point in time when there was not a computer in my home and I'm a Gen Xer. Yeah. Um, and so I'm part of that group. But then there were like yeah. the kids down the street whose parents were dentists and they didn't get computers until 1990, 1992, later. Uh -huh. <laughs> and so uh -huh. this kind of whatever your frame and lens is, is how you address your curiosities and your anxieties. That's super interesting. And then I think that, that you know, I've said this to Adam before. Whenever we're talking about millennials, we're really talking about boomers, is, is, my, is my, my hot take. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, I always say reality is relative. So this is what you're talking about. My reality is relative to my surroundings, right? And one of the things that has, has always struck me is something my, my daughter beautifully illustrated when she was 11 years old. Now, she is... Um, kind of bridge she's 2001 so she's absolute bridge millennial and gen z right so ari phoned her auntie who is two to three years my senior my sis and she said she was getting her to give her ammunition for her to get an apple phone Right. So she says to her auntie, she says, well, auntie, how old were you when you got your apple phone? <laughs> and my mom, my, my sister turns around and goes, 40. Yeah. And you just saw Ari's face fall. You know, she's like, damn, that didn't work. Yeah. You know, because, they, honey, they weren't around until Auntie Lori was 40, you know. Yeah. <laughs> But the kids, you know, that so we have kind of this technology that's been heavily accelerated. We have this generation we're giving as an excuse and a reason to accelerate this technology because, you know, this is this hotbed of literacy who will be buying up this product, right? And I think if you actually map that, we, we created those people. We messed with their heads enough for them to, you know, be hardwired for this rate of stimuli. And that's the thing that concerns me the most is that we have to be kind of ready with this catching mitt for overstimulating an entire generation. And, and the, the catching mitt is the mental health catching mitt for, you know, this, this generation of people who have been over-medicated with ADHD, uh, you know, drugs, because the institutions they were being educated in, uh, weren't designed for a brain that had essentially been schooled to get a rate of stimuli similar to what a television is feeding them. Mm -hmm. Right. There's, yeah. There's also a funny evolution there. My my dad had ADHD his entire life, and yeah. you know, so in yeah. the fifties, if you have ADHD, you're just a delinquent, right? You're, you're just yes. a bad kid who yeah, gets there's punished. No, there's no mechanism yeah. to help. 
but in who the will 80s, eventually become an engineer. Yeah, right. Exactly. And and so in 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 the eighties, though, we say no, 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 no. They have hyperactivity disorder, and there's a thing called Ritalin. And so then the response is, well, I, okay, I can't punish them for a disability, so get them medicated. God damn it, you know, like like I don't want to deal with them, so put them on the meds. And then you yeah. did have you know just an ordinary seven year olds who can't sit still because I don't know they're seven. Um, yeah. <laughs> being medicated because look how docile they are when the executive function is just like turned up to the hilt, you know. As someone with ADHD, I love it when my executive function is turned up to the hilt, but I have to suffer. So it's so true, though. And now that we've got through COVID, I mean, well, I've been doing a lot of research with doctors and pharmacists and nurses, and you know, everybody's saying the new normal is you know that you have mental health issues and it's recognized and accepted, right? Uh, and I'm like, well, yeah, because a huge amount of that population was medicated to their gills when they were right. kids. So it was normalized then. Yeah, it's the most yeah. American thing ever to just add another solution instead of moving upstream and finding out what's the cause and solving that. It's like, <laughs> well, now Ritalin is causing this problem. So let's change. Let's give another drug that will add a little bit of energy in there or like have a Gatorade before school along with your Ritalin. So the sugar will will sort of balance you out. <laughs> let's see well, what the next problem is. Absolutely. My my favorite piece of research that was conducted around about 2001 and then it was revisited in 2005 was a study where they said, you know, it, a child between the age of zero and one should not receive any television stimuli. And after that, it's really a it should only it should be limited to 10 minutes. Right. And I knew all of these parents who had plopped their kids down in front of baby Mozart and said, damn, each one of these is only 10 minutes. And so they put it on repeat. <laughs> so these pure little buggers were watching like an hour of repeat, you know, Mozart, oh, because that would more. be better for the kids. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. because more is better, right? <laughs> um, but it was all about not the quality of the content. And this is one of the things we have to remember. It was just the stimuli itself irrespective of the content. It's the stimuli and what it's teaching the brain when the brain is developing over the first 18 months. Mm -hmm. And that stimuli is so fast, right? Yes. And so different from laying on your back and staring at a mobile going round and round or having your mom or dad read to you, that that's what your brain is be defining as the norm. Right. So we are going to have these kids who expect stimuli at a certain pace. Yep. And that caused us new challenges, right? With regards interacting with them, with regards engaging them, more so than they're the tech industry. I think we had a whole generation here who was stimulated to a point where that was the norm. And we all had to kind of reach that. One of the things that comes out in, in the Millennials Rising book is they're so they're extremely obsessed with um, this kind of turn that was taken. Uh, they're clearly they're clearly very uh, anxious about um, women having control over their reproductive lives is, is how I would probably phrase that. So there's a lot of mention of like, you know, after um, sort of widespread legalization of contraception, after the Griswold decision, after mm -hmm. Roe v. Wade, you have boomers who are holding off parenthood 
because they can, right? They they yeah. are delaying having their first children because they have methods of doing that. Um, and so there, the way that the authors sort of frame this is there was sort of therefore, you know, those 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 later Gen Xers are unwanted children is the is more or less the frame that that's given there like didn't really want kids got one anyway have to deal with that now but also you know you're still young enough and not well established enough it's stagflation it's energy crises yeah. it's high mortgage rates all of the rest of it so guess what you're doing you're working the kid is sitting at home watching hopefully pbs but probably not and um and, and that's that's how that goes and then there's sort of this massive turn that happens as we get into a little bit of you know mid first term reagan economic recovery of um of those boomers now putting that baby on board sign. The baby on board sign is a motif that runs through the Millennials Rising book. Yes. Um, hilariously, they are apparently coming back. <laughs> um, and uh, and now it's the this generation, Millennials are the wanted children. And yes. So they are prize ponies. <laughs> they are being mm -hmm. trained Special up every Special snowflakes. Yes, the baby Mozart thing is is coming from a place of good intentions. It's like I want to give Absolutely. this kid the best head start I possibly can and give them yep. things that will stimulate their brains in good ways. Yeah. You're absolutely right, Farah. It's the same as Stephen King says, SSDD, same shit, different day, right? <laughs> We're creating the same problem, but for different reasons. Right. So with the Gen Xers, it was absolutely to your point, because we we were in many ways the byproduct of, uh, you know, I'm a woman, hear me roar. Plus, I'm a husband with freedom to divorce. Right. Uh, which happened a lot. And, you know, not to say that women didn't divorce as well. Right. But it was that combination that created a whole generation, mm -hmm. all, all three of us on on this call. Um, where we had to fend for ourselves, right? Uh, and that was in some ways, and we were, by the way, a much smaller generation, only 11% of the population. It's important to understand volume. That's that's where, you know, the quant is really meaningful to me because, you know, we just, our footprint was so darn small, right? And we see its effect on our children I don't know about you, Farrah and Adam, but I found that I would move to these great areas, right, where the schools had been amazing and I'm pregnant and I want my kid to have these amazing schools in these amazing neighborhoods. And all of the boomers who had built those communities, their kids were leaving school. So all of them were now on the city councils voting out investment in the schools, yes. right? So I came to, I, I always have felt as a Gen Xer kind of, sandwiched between these two generations that are given priority over us. So what's so interesting about that, because, you know, I, <laughs> I, I recognize that I have a, an odd relationship with my parents where it was a lot of adult conversation for a very small kid, but we, we, we had the same conversations. My parents were so frustrated by the greatest yep. generation who had all the time in the world on their hands, who had pensions, who had their social security, who, as I've said before, my econ teacher in high school said, would get in their Buicks and roll down to the polls. They were reliable voters and they were not going to vote for a property tax increase that would Never. fund the local schools. They were not going to vote for a special levy to pay for new books or add a teacher or whatever. Um, 
if you can't tell, I'm from Oregon, where that's how we funded everything for a long time wow. was like local levies. And yeah. um, and they were the ones who voted for the property tax limitation measure <laughs> that then meant that all the funds went into Salem and then got distributed back out. And all those privileged white parents did not get uh, to decide where that money got spent in their own local districts anymore in quite the same way. And the the thing that's interesting is they too felt sandwiched they had these older kids that no one seemed to care about that the government yep. had literally said if you were born before 1982 no benefits for your kids um if you know you there, there's no services there's no uh special ed really to speak of you still have i mean obviously you know hillary clinton is out <laughs> doing her stuff for the children's defense fund in the 70s like trying to get disabled kids access to school and yep that that had not fully come into come into um into fruition although my elementary school was a, a magnet school for disabled kids but um i don't know if magnet school is the right term for it but we had a special program for it yep. um but so that that sense of being sandwiched i wonder how much of that is about which generation you're in and just that you've hit a life stage and now yep. the olds yep. have decided i don't have any kids in school so i'd like my property taxes to be lower and the youngs are like, I need stuff and there isn't enough to give them. <laughs> and so yeah. you're, you're stuck between these tensions all the time. I, I think so. And it has to do with how many people were born in that given time, right? You in, in <clears throat> anthropology and sociology, you look at these periods of time that were defined by volume and plague, right? So, you know, and it's, it's all about resource availability, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you you get you have a small number of people you have more resources it kind of eases up to you have this huge group of people the resources become lack uh, lacking and you get a plague and it all goes back down again right so I I think we're probably back into the plague model now with the pandemic mm -hmm. ironically enough right so you know that's something we're all going to have to explore around mm -hmm. because uh, that. We had the longest living generation with the boomers. And what I'm noticing with the pandemic is in many ways that is saying, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. you, you're going to live your allotted amount of time. And I'm here to make sure that's happening. Right. It seems to be balancing out. Well, that that Big was an effect even before that with um, with the opioid crisis as well. I mean, that was really disproportionately affecting boomers and um, and then just sort of a general you know, again, I think of conversations I had with my dad who used to have to get Synvisc and, and, and uh, injections into his knees because his cartilage was all gone. And it was this like, oh, I'm so old thing. And I was like, dad, you were an athlete as a kid, but you did not have supportive trainers, <laughs> right? You did not have nice, cushy Nikes to run yeah. around on the on the on the asphalt streets of Garden Grove, California. In. And so, of course, your knees are gone. <laughs> like you played soccer, you played polo, you played tennis, you ran, you did all of these things. Of course, they're gone take it easy but that's like but all through the 80s they're doing their diets and their jazzercise and all of this stuff thinking and and all the <laughs> actuarial tables are like you're gonna live forever and then you know reality hits yeah um, exactly yeah. i actually i've wanted for years now to create a t-shirt that says sport kills <laughs> and and anybody who knows me knows I'm like a major foodie. I'm a large woman, which you may hear from the resonance of my voice. <laughs> and um, so when I say that, people go, oh, well, you know, a larger woman's going to say that sort of thing. Rubbish. Every major 
challenge I've had with my body is because I went out and walked. I was a hill walker. I was a dancer. All of this, it all comes from that. So, you know, you it's a risk factor. Get over it. And yeah. and these 1980s things, we all looked at them and uh, there were very famous people in, in the dietary industry uh, who had major cardiac arrests and died in like their 30s and mm-hmm. 40s. Yeah. One of the things that I'm seeing, I did a major piece of research for um, a pharmaceutical company and I was in Rotterdam and I'm talking with people who have asthma, right? And I'm walking into these homes, I'm expecting, you know, people who look like me and what I'm talking with is a 20 year old who's absolutely stunning and looks like Adam, right? Uh, You know, just fit, beautiful and all this. And uh, I was like, how the hell do you have asthma? And it's exertion-related asthma is the new thing because we all have imposed on people, and this I'm coming back to the stimuli that we talked about, the study, you know, where we're all expecting stimuli at a certain level. We've all been taught that to sit still and relax is laziness, right? So mm-hmm. couch, potato, all of that, right? And so the really productive people are the people who work out and and are active 100% of the time. Well, what that's creating is bodies that can't take that. And they're getting things like exertion-related asthma and people who do not know how to rest and relax. So, Mm -hmm. bam, we have a pandemic happen and they are forced to rest and relax. (laughs) Bros, as we we near the end of of our time together, I wanted to ask, at what point do you feel we were defining the millennial generation and turned into we were assigning 70 million people these characteristics and traits because it was like let's learn about my kids let's learn about the next generation let's write books about why these kids are so precious but then it feels like it turned into you are this even though you don't want to be part of this group, you are, and here's who you are. You're a tech savvy. You're a snowflake. You're X, Y, Z. Can you remember a time or a shift? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of superimposing what I just talked about with regards to the boomers being their parents. Yeah. Right. And when you have aspirations for your children, right. And around eight is that it, individuation, what is now individuation, it used to be at another point in time, but it became much earlier, right? Uh, during the millennial timeframe. So we had major shifts on how people looked at children during the millennial developmental phase. So the introduction of tweens, that was never a concept before. Um, the uh, things actually moved much earlier. People started allowing their children to define their style at the age of three to four. We were seeing that was stride right. That had not been allowed before. Um, so that was the first kind of self-determination at such an early age. Um, so we are seeing a new approach to childhood defined by the boomers. And I think that's when they were saying, I'm creating an entity that's going to be significantly different from past generations, right? It's going to be early decision-making. It's going to be early individuation. It's going to be early independence with the tween realm, right? Uh, And I think that right after tweens is when 
uh, we saw them saying, and this is the generation because they lost control of the script at that point in time. They lost control of the narrative. The millennials took control of their own narrative. So therefore, I have to impose something on you to ensure that I'm still defining your narrative. It's so funny because you, the way you just walked through that is very logical and uh, come like I'm remembering all these points as you're talking through it. But the idea of a three-year-old quote unquote, defining their style, you're, you're dead on, but that's not the child didn't choose that. In most cases, the parent chose it and the kid maybe smiled or reacted to it or didn't cry. And then therefore the, the parent again assigned that or a generation of parents assigned it. So it never really was them choosing, but five years later when they did, did have a voice and say, this is, I'd like to wear this instead of stride, right. It became like, Oh no. Uh, now I just realized how difficult you are and <laughs> what, a, what a snowflake you are. And that baby on board sign has got to go for sure. <laughs> Well, absolutely. There, there seem to be a lot of those loops. We've talked about some of them as well, where like as they're going off to college, it's all extremely optimistic, like they're ambitious and they're hard workers and they're going to excel and they're going to be great. And then we get to them starting to graduate from college and all this anxiety about, oh, my gosh, how are we going to share a workplace with these needy people who ask too many questions and want a seat at the table, even though they don't know anything? Yes. Um, yep. And that that also is is a uh, maybe I hadn't thought about it in that frame before, Rose, but the idea of that maybe part of that, what I keep calling kind of a heel turn <laughs> is, is boomers trying to kind of get back some control over this huge group of people that before you overrun me in the workplace, I'm going to start a story here that puts you back in your place. Um, exactly. That's or justifies um, a new investment in the workplace. Mm. Right. Mm. Because one of the things we were talking about was massive infrastructure investments. Right. Mm. They weren't done for the Gen Xers. But if you look at uh, Motorola and what it did in the merchants uh, building in Chicago, just they moved from a crappy little suburb. I'm sorry, because my synagogue was in that suburb. I apologize, suburb. <laughs> but <clears throat> outside of Chicago. And they moved the entire infrastructure to the center of Chicago, right yep. on the canal there. And they said, this, it's going to be in the Merchant Mart. It's going to be the coolest ever space. That's a huge investment. And it was the new, it was the new flat for their kids. Yes. Yeah. And a lot of that was, maybe, I wonder how much of it was, there's two sides to that market. Mm -hmm. There's. We, boomers saying, hey, how are we going to own our place, protect our place, which is any empire building. But then there's uh -huh. also a marketplace of consultants, marketers, everybody else who's like, oh, I can sell these insights. Uh -huh. HR people, which I think mm -hmm. we're going to talk about uh, in a couple of weeks, figuring out like, oh, I can fill this pipe with endless quote unquote insights and research and tools and management techniques to to get this baby on board translated into a 25 year old um, coordinator level employee that needs a special set of skills when it's like, what do you mean? <laughs> why, why does this all have to turn up? So like things should evolve. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know. I think we may have overcorrected. 
I wonder how much of it too is boomers wanting that secretly wanting that stuff for themselves and not feeling like they had purchased to ask for it from their silent and greatest generation bosses. And so now that they're in charge and well, we've got to accommodate the cute kids, <laughs> right? I can finally have that open office plan I always wanted, or I can finally have a cool computer setup, or I can finally have a, yeah. a nice canteen in the office or whatever. I I really think that we cannot undervalue the fact that they wanted to change the world. That was their role in life. Okay. Mm -hmm. That was the role of that generation. And when we asked the same question of millennials, they answered the same way. Hmm. They said, our generation is fundamentally going to change the world. Right. And I think that that was what their parents had given them as a legacy. Mm-hmm. and had imposed upon them. And now you've got a group of people who, you know, have that kind of defining their generation for, you know, whatever it's worth. And now I think they they may be taking control, control of it into their own hands and redefining what their parents imposed upon them. And it's far more organic. It's far more flexible. It's far more um, about human interaction in many cases. You know, when you take it away from those spots that you were talking about, Farah, Mm -hmm. I find that a great many of the millennials that I interact with, and that is very much its own test bubble, Mm -hmm. okay, are very much about community, are very much about connecting with their people because this is very important. This was the first generation to grow up with group learning exercises, okay? Prior to that, we had always had individual learning. To manage the huge volumes of students coming through the schools, they had to create group learning exercises for the first time ever since the caves, Mm -hmm. okay? And so our people, our millennials, are much more open to learning and growing as groups versus individual competition, which their parents were very much at the forefront of. So what do you think it means now for, I mean, not not technically the topic of this, uh, of this season of the show or what we're trying to work on, but that makes me curious about that forgotten generation of, of Gen X and their Gen Z progeny. What, what, what's, the, what's the legacy then from the generation that was told you're slackers and you're going to be worse off than your parents and you probably deserve to be? What, what's, the, what's, the herit, what's the thing that they are passing on to their kids? Oh, bitter and twisted. Uh, you know, <laughs> I I don't know about you guys, but I just I'm like, I've spent such a large part of my life going, really? Real <laughs> they get what? Really? Because when we joined the workforce, there were the, the largest layoffs ever. Mm-hmm. Right. I remember these literally queues of people going down a corridor in London and Soho and they'd walk in one end of the meeting room and come out the other end crying hysterically because they'd lost a job. And it was just this huge circle. Um, so, you know, I, I look at that and I go, wow, how are we going to change things? You know, um, and it, it it's a good question. I don't know. I really, it's like one of the toughest things in the world is defining yourself. Um, mm-hmm. and especially, you know, after the, you know, the being told for so many years that you're an afterthought as a generation, 
Um, so it, it will be interesting. I wish people would do more work actually on Gen X. That's your next bit, guys. Uh-oh. Rose <laughs> Uh-oh. may have just signed herself up for season two of In the Demo. <laughs> we just turned into a, we need a, a third host here for this. I know you I have, so. I know you've done the research to back it up too, Rose. <laughs> thanks guys. Rose, thanks so much for making time for us. Really appreciate your insight. It's been great fun. It's it's lovely to chat about a topic that I'm I'm as you probably can see pretty passionate about. On the next episode of In the Demo Farah and Adam look at how a generation universally described as idealists was expected to fix everything from business to government to the environment. I'm your robot host, Eliza. Please be kind. In the Demo is produced by Farah Bostic and Adam Piano, with support from the Difference Engine. Music by Omega Man, under the Creative Commons license. Go to inthedemopodcast.com for behind-the-scenes research and supporting information.